Hi everyone, I'm your host NG, and welcome to the 54th episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, audiobooks help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Mark Roberts Rank, author of the book, The Poverty Paradox, Understanding Economic Hardship Amid American Prosperity. And the paradox of poverty amidst plenty has plagued the United States throughout the 21st century. Why should the wealthiest country in the world also have the highest rates of poverty among the industrialized nations? Based on his decade-long research and scholarship, one of the nation's leading authorities provides the answer. In The Poverty Paradox, Mark Roberts Rank develops his unique perspective for understanding this puzzle. I also wanted to speak to Mark because I could see some parallels of how things are currently in other parts of the world, such as the UK. And it was great to start a book with him. I hope you enjoy the episode. What is the main viewpoint of poverty and why is this something that you have chosen to argue against in the book? Well, I think poverty is just, it's, it's a really important issue because it affects a lot of people's lives and it affects the country as a whole. And, you know, one of the motivating factors behind this book was that the way that we've thought about poverty in the United States, in my opinion, is, is wrong and is misplaced. And so this book is trying to basically set the record straight. And I got from the first chapter of the book that there's like different ways in defining what poverty is, whether it be from income, social exclusion, deprivation, or the absolute approach. Uh, which one would you say best defines it? I think, you know, the way that we've generally defined poverty in the, in the United States is to say, if you fall below a certain level of income, we're going to count you as in poverty. And if you're above that level, we're going to count you as not being in poverty. So in the United States, in the last year, the cutoff for a family of three was around $22,000, U.S. dollars. So if you fell below that point, you would be considered in poverty. And I think most people would agree that if you're earning less than $22,000, $23,000 in the United States, you're in pretty tough economic straits. So that's kind of the, the way that poverty is defined, and that's pretty much the definition that I use throughout the book. Although, as you point out, there are many other ways of thinking about measuring poverty. Mm. And another thing I actually got from your book is that there are many factors that cause it, but also that poverty in a lot of cases is short but frequent. Do you mind elaborating on how this is the case? Yeah, so a lot of my work over the last 20 years or so has looked at kind of what we might call the dynamics of poverty. How long are folks in poverty and how often might poverty strike somebody? And so it's the case that uh, most people who experience poverty in the United States do so for maybe a year or two, and then they'll get out of poverty, and then maybe something happens down the road that throws them back into poverty. So that's much more the typical pattern. There are families that are in poverty for long periods of time, but they tend to be a minority of the overall poverty population. The other thing that I've looked at, um, which I think is really interesting, is to ask this question, over the course of 30 or 40 years, what's the likelihood that an American at some point will experience poverty? And what you find there, when you look over a long period of time, 
is that around 75% of Americans between the ages of 20 and 75 will spend at least one year in poverty or near poverty. So when you take a long-term perspective, what you find is that poverty has a very a wide reach, that a lot of people are gonna be affected by that at some point in their lives. talk about the forces behind poverty, how much is it down to factors such as low income, which brings a likelihood that one will live from paycheck to paycheck, or lack of opportunities, or the area that one lives in, Mark? Yeah, so so one of the, the big arguments in the book is that one of the ways that we've often looked at poverty here in the U.S., is as some kind of an individual failing, that people aren't working hard enough, or they made bad decisions, or they, they don't have enough skills, these kinds of things. That there is something about the individual that leads them into poverty. And the argument that I make in the book is that, for the most part, poverty is a structural failing. And so it's the result of not enough jobs that pay a decent wage. And what we see is that more and more people in, in the last few decades have become economically vulnerable to things like losing a job, or if you get sick, there's not much to protect you. So poverty really is, to a large extent, a failure at the structural level rather than the individual level. It has to do with the economy, it has to do with social policy, and those, those structural factors just don't provide enough opportunities for everybody that's in need of those opportunities. So how is the system designed for many people to champion the idea of pull yourself by the bootstraps or the rags to riches story ideology then would you say mark yeah so an earlier book of mine focused on this idea of the american dream and what is the american dream and and what's the reality of the american dream and one of the key components of the american dream is what you just mentioned and that is the idea that you know in the united states you can rise from rags to riches you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and certainly there are obviously cases of folks that have done that no question about it but if you look at the overall numbers of people, most if you look at sort of the, the statistical data, there's actually less economic mobility in the United States than there is in a number of other countries, which is pretty surprising. And so what people talk about is that at the bottom end and at the top end of the income distribution in the United States, it's very sticky. That is, people tend to, it's hard to, to move people out of those positions. And so there's much less of that economic mobility than, than sort of the myths or the, the idea of the American dream would imply. And that's based on, you know, the, the actual empirical reality and not kind of the overall myths that surround the United States. And even though this is the case, it seems as though when it comes to poverty, people are treated as if it's their own fault. And therefore, they have a sense of shame around it when, you know, there are many factors at play and it shouldn't be, shouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, that's very much the case, that there's a lot of stigma surrounding poverty in the United States. And the idea is, again, going back to the sort of idea of the American dream, well, 
if you didn't make it, there's something wrong with you because this is the land of opportunity. And so you should be able to rise from rags to riches. And within the United States and within other countries too, the UK, this has been the case as well. There's the idea of the deserving and the undeserving poor. The deserving poor are seen as folks in which their poverty is caused by something beyond their control. They got sick or their spouse died or something like that. And therefore they're deserving of some assistance. The undeserving poor are kind of the able-bodied working poor who there's, they should be trying harder. And that's kind of the lens that we often view poverty from in the United States, that people need to be working harder, they need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And yet, as I was saying earlier, most of poverty is the result of a failure at the structural rather than the individual level. So what do you mean when you use the term human capital in the book? Yeah, so one of the things, uh, one of the chapters um, focuses on the importance of human capital. And what that is, is basically the kind of skills and resources that each individual brings into the labor market that allows them to compete to find a good opportunity, a good job. So these would be things like your education and your job experience and the specific skills that you have. And those are important factors in terms of that individual being able to find a good opportunity. But, as I say in the book, those factors explain who wins and loses at the economic game, but it doesn't explain why there are losers in the first place. And that, again, gets to this idea of a structural failure. And it, again, gets to this analogy that I use that we might want to talk about of musical chairs and thinking about poverty as a large-scale version of musical chairs. Absolutely. So when we look at human capital characteristics, how accurate would you say it is in determining a child or a family's outcome? Well, it's certainly, it, there's no question that um, the more skills that somebody has, the more education and the better quality of education that somebody has, they're going to do economically better. I mean, there's, there's just no doubt about it. The, the data is very, very strong. So in that sense, you know, human capital is, again, very, very important in terms of who specifically will do well in terms of the labor market and in terms of avoiding poverty. Hmm. So how much would you say class plays into this as well? Because it's something that you mentioned in the book as being handed down. So I think the class structure is really important in terms of understanding the risk of poverty. And one of the ways that I, I talk about this is this notion of cumulative inequality. And then I use this analogy of monopoly and sort of an altered game of monopoly. So we've got a game of monopoly where we have three players, but one player starts out with $5,000, another player starts out with $1,500, and the third player starts out with $300. Well, we're going to play the game, everybody has the same rules, but given those advantages or disadvantages, that's going to have an effect on who's going to win and lose at the game and it's going to have an effect on how people are able to play the game and so that's kind of what's happening here we've got some people that are starting out with that five thousand dollars and they're going to do well they're going to get good education they're going to get those skills and they're going to be able to compete but then we've got other people other kids that are starting out with the three hundred dollars 
and they're not going to have those advantages and therefore they're going to be at a much higher risk of experiencing poverty so i think you know social class is a very important factor in terms of understanding who in particular will experience poverty So you mentioned this already, actually, which I'm glad you did, because I wanted to ask you about this as well. So I want to talk about a chapter you have titled Two Levels of Understanding. And would you mind touching on the musical chairs analogy that you used at the beginning of the chapter? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a really, for um, listeners, I think this is something that really kind of brings home the analysis that I've used and, and sort of brings this to life. And so what I say is that Basically what we're doing here is we're playing a large-scale version of musical chairs. Now let's imagine we're playing musical chairs here in my office or your office and we've got 10 people playing and there's eight chairs available. Okay, the people circle around, music stops. Two people are going to lose out. Now who loses out? Well, they may be not in a good position when the music stops. They might not be quite as fast or as agile. And we can say, well that's why those two people lost out. But if we step back and we look at the structure of the game, then we say, you know what? Two people were going to lose out regardless of what their characteristics were. It doesn't really matter what those individual characteristics are. And that's what I'm arguing is happening here. Because of the structural failure in, in our society, there are only so many chairs available for people that are playing the game. Now the people who are not going to get those chairs are the ones who have less human capital, what we were talking about earlier. But given that there are only eight chairs for 10 people playing, then those individual characteristics only explain who loses out at the game, not why the game produces losers in the first place. And that's the key here. There are two important questions. Who loses out in terms of experiencing poverty but why does poverty occur in the first place? And the reason poverty occurs in the first place is because we're playing a game of musical chairs where there aren't enough chairs, and we might think of those chairs as good paying jobs and, mm. and having resources and so on and so forth for everybody who is competing for those opportunities. I'd say on the flip side of this as well, though, is that so when we increase human capital, how much good can that do if there's a more amount of players but the numbers of chairs stay the same. Yeah, so one argument is a bit of a counter to what I was just saying, is that there is an argument, and I think there's some, some basis in this argument, that if you provide more education, more skills, more training to your population, they will be more innovative and they will create more opportunities. And if we think about that, that's creating more chairs in the game. So I think that, you know, look, I'm in the, I'm in the education business. I'm a professor here at, you know, Washington University in St. Louis. So I, I certainly believe in education. And I think there can be an effect that can actually increase the number of chairs. So I think improving people's human capital is, is a really good thing. I mean, it's good for them as individuals, but I think it's also good for society as a whole. So I guess my point would be, we need to focus on both increasing people's skills in education, but also providing more good jobs and opportunities for everyone who is involved. Absolutely, especially when you consider 
there was a part in your book where you mentioned that when you just invest in children, invest in their education, they contribute a lot to society as opposed to on the back end when they're older and they're struggling to get jobs and they need more help from the state, isn't it? So yeah, you're right. I mean, I talk about the idea of in one way, we're going to pay for the amount of poverty we have in one way or another. And the argument that I make is that we've been paying for poverty on the back end of the problem in terms of not having as good a workforce, in terms of having more health problems. All of these are associated with higher uh, risks of poverty. And my argument would be it's much smarter to pay on the front end of the problem by reducing childhood poverty. You then save money down the road. And, and I did a study with a graduate student here where we estimated for every dollar you spend on reducing childhood poverty, you reduce the costs in the future by seven to twelve dollars. So you, for every dollar you spend, you're saving seven to twelve dollars down the road. My guess is that would be the, probably the case in, in the UK and other places as well. So it's just really smart policy to focus on reducing poverty rather than focusing on poverty on the back end. Speaking of uh, just policy and governments in general, when it comes to government action in the US, how can American democracy be more representative of its citizens in tackling these issues, would you say? Yeah, and one of the things that I think that has happened in the United States is that because those in poverty or near poverty don't have a lot of resources and they don't have a lot of money in terms of being able to lobby for their interests, they're often disregarded and, and not paid attention to. In fact, the recent budget raising the, the deficit, one of the things that was put in was greater work requirements for people that are receiving food assistance. You know, and this is because of the, the, the poor are an easy target to go after. So one of the things that you, know, you, you want a democracy to do is to represent the needs of all people in that democracy. And that's clearly not happening here. And that's a whole other subject where we could talk about you know, campaign finance reform and all these kinds of things. But, but I think that that's a really important issue in terms of thinking about why our social policy doesn't focus more on addressing the issue of poverty. And when we look at America today, why haven't the government programs so far not really worked, Mark? One reason is that the social safety net that we have is very weak. It's very punitive. It's designed, it's designed really to make it very difficult for people to use these programs. But I would also say we do have programs that have been actually very effective in reducing poverty. And the major program that we have would be the Social Security program for folks over the age of 65. And so if you look at the poverty rate for the elderly in the United States right now is around 10%. But if there were no social security in the United States, that rate of poverty would go from 10% to 40%. So in other words, social security is able to get a lot of, of senior citizens out of poverty. So that's an example of a very effective government program. Mm. And your book highlighted that there is an appetite for change amongst people, but I suppose one of the issues are is that it rarely gets passed, doesn't it? Any of these ideas into Congress. 
Yeah, and, and you know, we're in a very dysfunctional kind of phase right now. It seems like nothing is getting done. You know, even raising the, the deficit is like, it's really difficult. So, but I do, you know, I mentioned in, at sort of the end of the book that I do think that I've seen over the last 10 or 15 years much more of a, of a feeling and, and of a change in the country that we really need to address this issue that inequality has been getting wider and wider, um, not only in the United States, but other, other places as well. And that that has some very negative effects on society as a whole. It affects our democracy, it affects a whole bunch of things. And so I think, you know, especially the kind of the younger generation, I think is more and more attuned to this. And I'm hopeful and optimistic that in the long run, we will be seeing some fundamental changes down the road. Mm. And you do say, in the later chapter as well, how compared to other developed nations, the US assists the least when it comes to those that are vulnerable. In what uh, elements is this the case, Mark? Well, you know, in lots of lots of areas. So, for example, a lot of countries, a lot of European countries have what's known as a child allowance, so that if you have children, a family gets a certain amount of income on a monthly basis to help raise that child. In the United States, we don't have anything like that at all. We did for actually in the pandemic for just about six months, and that had a big effect on reducing childhood poverty, but that's now gone away. The other case where the United States is really an outlier is that we do not have any universal health care coverage. So, you know, in the United States, your health care is largely dependent upon the job you're at. And your job may not provide that kind of assistance. And if you don't have a job, you don't have health care coverage. Well, that's so different than most countries. You know, the UK or Europe or, or other countries almost all have universal health care coverage. So, and that's really important. That's a really important sort of resource to have, obviously. And so that's something where we're very much of an outlier um, in terms of, of other sort of industrialized countries. Lastly, are there any encouraging developments in tackling this issue and do you hold any optimism in the future <laughs> well yes i you know i i i i'm cautiously optimistic as i said before i think there is a there is more of an awareness of the issues of, of inequality and i think the issues of poverty in the united states and that we can do much much better and I think if you take a long kind of term view here, instead of just the next year or two, but you think in sort of, you know, 20, 30 years, I think that the curve will start to bend more towards thinking about our society being a more fair society, a more just society, a more equal society. And providing those kinds of things that are, you know, my argument would be not only should we address poverty because it's, it's an important social justice issue, but it's also a really smart economic issue to focus on because, you, as I said before, you save a lot of money down the road by addressing poverty. So I think that hopefully these arguments will gain more and more traction over time. So yes, I'm, I, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. That was Mark Robert Rank, author of the book, The Poverty Paradox, Understanding Economic Hardship Amid American Prosperity. The book and audiobook is available now, 
which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Mark for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.